I'm in the future. I'm not making decisions based on the tools available right now. I'm making decisions based on the tools that are available at all, like period, or they may not be available. Maybe we need to build something. Whereas I'm getting into the details. I want to know what is their plan for the database. I want to know what their plan is for, you have to make a decision, right? Is that growth permanent or temporary? What I like to do is we'll approach a very complicated or, or long process, right? There's a lot of pieces to it. Hi, this is Vasil from Insart. And welcome to the FinTech CTO podcast for FinTech leaders and builders. And today we will have the great guest as always. Let's jump into it. So let's start. So today uh, we have Daniel Rip Simon with us and uh, he's CTO of uh, Guidance Residential. So let's start and uh, my very first question. So Daniel, could you please introduce uh, yourself and uh, tell us a little bit more about what's your current role and what you do? Sure. Well, I appreciate you having me today. Um, so my name is Daniel Reeb-Simon. I am Guidance Residential's Chief Technology Officer. Uh, I've been with Guidance in one capacity or another for over 10 years. Um, and I started out as a person who had the responsibility of figuring out how to take a company national because you know everything back then was all on paper. And especially if you're not familiar with guidance residential, we focus on home mortgages um, in the United States and specifically Sharia compliant home mortgages. And at the time, everything uh, in the mortgage business was, was paper. And so kind of my first role in this FinTech world was how can I take a paper business and take a company that was local where you have employees in, in, in one location and you need to branch out, you need to get into other states, you need to have sales executives across the country. How do they access your systems? And so, you know, for the past 15 years, I've been focusing on, on building technology and taking a traditionally paper business and injecting these digital tools into it. And so that's my role still to this day is, is even though I've taken on more responsibility, uh, I get to do less programming that I used to be able to do. It's, it's more management and executive work, but uh, still my role is to make sure that we are continuing to push the limits, making sure that our customer base, although a kind of minority base in the United States, making sure that they don't lose access to the technology that all the big banks have. And so I'm a huge proponent of FinTech, the, the industry, the, the technology, the startups, all of that, because it, it does just that. It really enables small companies. We're not so small anymore, but enables these smaller companies to have really um, nice access to the financial world. So that's my role. That's what I do today. Uh, I really am passionate about it. And I appreciate you having me again to be able to talk about this. Okay, Daniel. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, so um, I know that you have a pretty significant technical background as a software developer and uh, engineer. And can you please tell us a little more about your technical background, how you started uh, your software developer career and also the very, very important step why and how did you decide to move to more management role? That's a loaded question, but I'll try to do what I can. So 
again, I started out kind of in the weeds. Like I was a developer. I was making code changes. I was, um, you know, at the time doing everything from gathering specs to testing, to writing the code, to deploying the code, to managing the database. I, um, I've got, you know, they're all, I don't know what, probably 15 years older now, but I've got an Oracle certification as a DBA. I've got a Zen certified um, Zen certified engineer certification when I was doing programming. So my background is really um, on the battlefield, writing code. And, and I still, to, that, to this day, enjoy that. Um, you know, and when I do have time, I like to build little startups. I don't really have any interest in taking those startups public or, or launching a huge campaign on them, but I like just building those little things. So that's my background. It took me a while to realize, and I, I guess this is always... Uh, that transition that a person takes through their through, through their kind of growth cycle in realizing that I, I couldn't do it all on my own. You know, I couldn't continue to be an expert database, an expert programmer, an expert tester, an expert. I mean, we didn't have all these front-end tools, for example, that we have now. So now you've got to be an expert front-end developer, not just a front-end designer and UI design and mobile devices now. You just, you can't do it. And so I found that in order for me to grow, in order for me to really implement the tools that I wanted to implement, I needed a team to do that. And so although I don't enjoy the management as much, I don't like all the political stuff. I think it, I think in some sense it does get in the way, but it allows me to produce more when I can have a bigger team and I can have people that are experts in different areas and I can listen to them and I can use their ideas because a lot of them I wouldn't even have thought about because I have one specific skill or one, you know, specific um, expertise. So it was kind of just the natural progression. It's like, well, do I want to just continue to sit around and do tasks every day? Or do I want to actually build tools? Do I want to actually shape companies um, and, and, and design things that are used by thousands of users instead of just a checkbox here or there? And so it was just natural progression there. I, I still fight it to this day, by the way. I still get in there and, and do everything I can to disrupt what the developers are doing, you know, they always see me coming in there and then they start panicking because I'm making changes or submitting pull requests. But, uh, you know, you got to keep it fun, uh, but it really does enable me uh, to build larger scale products, to make bigger changes, to shape companies, uh, to um, meet a, a lot of great people and startups, you know, get at that level instead of just writing code every day. Did you remember any moment when you just woke uh, in the morning and decided like uh, you would like to be a CTO or a technical so, lead rather than be a developer. Maybe it was a kind of trigger event or something like that. So do you remember something like this or not? My, my life, had, there was a specific event. Um, it wasn't anything on my side, but I'll tell you, uh, they say that great executives wake up every day hoping that nobody realizes that they don't know what they're doing, right? And I have this quote that I go by. It's like, I, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until someone realizes I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't think, I don't take that as a bad thing. What I take it as is in order to move forward, you have to step into these territories that you're not familiar with. 
we're not as a as an executive i lead in the future and there's there's no limits to what we can build we can think of and so it, it kind of falls into what you're asking is uh as i was when i was working for guidance and I was just running the development team. Everything was going smoothly. All I had to deal with was some developers, had to deal with some pull requests, write some changes. And then our CIO at the time left the company. And I just assumed, you know what, I'm not quite there yet. I'm not sure I'm ready to kind of lead that whole company and, and take on, you know, you go from just development to security and infrastructure and disaster recovery and uh, equipment and assets, right? And at the time, I kind of, was, my CEO came to me and I told him that, you know, I'm not sure that I'm ready to do all this. And, you know, one of his phrases is, well, that's exactly why we think you are is because you're going to come into it with a fresh mind. You're going to have different ideas. Um, but at the same time, it was important for them to, to realize that I'm not a manager by, by nature, right? I mean, I do, I feel like I'm a pretty good manager. I hope so. Okay. I hope my team would say that. I hope the company would say that, but that's okay. not my skill set, you know? Um, but they understand that. Guidance is such an incredible company in that area is, they don't force you to be everything they for, you know, they want you to be good at what you're good at, but help in the other areas. And so they, they offered me the position and I was happy to take it just to see what I could do. It was scary as hell, but it was, uh, it was an exciting time period. So that was my moment, right. Is when, you know, you either step up or you don't, uh, it wasn't really a lot of room and I was, there was no chance I was going to let that opportunity go to waste. Um, because you bring in another CIO and then it's another 10 years before you have an opportunity to move into that type of role. And so I'm very happy that I took it. I hope that I'm doing a good job. Um, but it was kind of forced upon me, you know, it's like life. You just take what you Got can it. get and, and do the best you can with it. In what way and how your technical background helps you to be, to be actually a CTO? A CTO definitely is my strength. I know there's, it's all semantics when you get into CIOs and CTOs and COOs and all of that, but mm -hmm. you know, I definitely have a passion. So that's really the biggest factor with the technology is I love this stuff and it's changing every day. So if you don't love it, you can't keep up with it. You just can't. It's, you have to follow all these new companies. It's changing right underneath your feet. It takes hours and hours of just reading and 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 really failing when you're trying to implement things and so as you said my technical background as a developer as a dba as a designer as you know again we grew up doing everything we were the original full stack developers in very early 2000s right at the change in the millennium uh, we had to do everything and so i have a lot of experience in everything like, like like a little bit of experience in everything so when when a developer has a problem with some performance or maybe he has a security question or he's not sure how um, the database is storing a value or processing a value or uh, even when i get into infrastructure conversations with our infrastructure director of infrastructure um, talking to him about how the servers are interacting actually having an understanding of the core concepts, right? How does the internet work? How, do, how are these requests coming in? How are they going out? What are, whether, you know, you have Apache and workers or Nginx, 
you know, what's the advantage here and there? And so I like to get in the details. I think it surprises people a lot of the times when, when we meet with, with, with consultants and, you know, they're expecting to just kind of push something or they're expecting to just kind of sneak by or, or, or generalize something. Whereas I'm getting into the details. I want to know what is their plan for the database? I want to know what their plan is for, you know, the connections or, you know, what type of tools are we going to use to push notifications out to mobile devices, things like that. And I think that's my biggest strength when it comes to the CTO role is really getting down to the details and being able to talk to the low level developers and, and surprise them sometimes. You also mentioned uh, that you like to shape the business. So uh, do you have, you know, any kind of personal framework, how to do this? <laughs> well, I think that it's a lot easier when the company is smaller. Um, you're given a lot more leeway. You have to report to less people. So it's important to find a culture that supports it. Guidance specifically has an incredible culture. The, the employees that we work with, they, anytime you make a change, they are so welcoming, right? It might not be the best change or it might need to be tweaked a little bit, but they are very, very good at just supporting change. What you have to do is when you're looking at a process, right? You have to understand it. And it took me years to understand the mortgage industry, the financial industry, all of the pieces and all right, how am I going to get data from one place to another? And what's the best way to capture data from the end user? For me, you have to have the culture, right? You have to be in an environment that supports it because you're going to make mistakes. You're going to think something's going to work and then you put it out there and it's not. So the second thing is being able to pivot quickly, setting up your, whether it's de de deployment pipelines or processes, right? Your CICD stuff, setting it up so that you can react, not just you know, have this major deployment and then you're sitting there on your hands because you don't know how to make, to fix a, a little bug or if they don't like the layout, how do you redesign the layout? Is your, is your setup, um, uh, does it support change like that? And so you have to be in an environment where you can pivot very quickly. You just never know what's going to come up. Um, and then the other thing is to just break it out into individual pieces and try to make those pieces as clean or as simple as you can, and then put them together in a process. And so what I like to do is we'll approach a, a very complicated or, or long process, right? There's a lot of pieces to it. So let's focus on what are the hardest things. And the hardest thing might be, how do we connect to a customer's bank account to get in to their information? How do we make it as simple as possible? And focus on that. Don't worry about making it full scale. Don't worry about having like a bunch of tests or a bunch of designs. Just write some HTML, put some forms on there and just feel it out. I really am a huge proponent of proof of concepts. And some of the proof of concepts that I launch are the ugliest things, but they just prove that we can make one button, download an entire bank statement and analyze a customer's bank statements in the back end. Really uh, am a proponent of, of doing proof of concepts, small proof of concepts for a large process. Focus on 
the uh, difficult task and how can you make them the simplest? Because you'll get almost the largest reaction, right? The biggest benefit is, is sometimes just one little piece of the process, not trying to do the entire thing. You said that, uh, you know, you had the natural progression to see to your role and uh, mostly because you, you can work with people and with the team. So let's talk a little bit about your current team. So can, I, uh, can you please uh, tell us uh, how big is your current team, how it's structured, who are, people, who are these people in your team, who are the, what, are the, what roles uh, do you have in the current team? Yeah, sure. So we are actually a very small team. Well, what I would consider a small team for how, how much volume we're doing and how big the company is. So we have about six developers on our development team. And we have, I don't know, uh, 10 support team members that do support product support, internal support, um, you know, tra tra traditional IT support. But we focus on a really tight-knit team and we try to focus on specific products at a time and try not to stretch ourselves too thin. What the team looks like, well, we have now a director of engineering and he's kind of responsible for just hurting everybody, keeping everybody together, um, keeping them all on track, setting their their uh, their goals. What what product are we going to focus on? Um, making sure that we try to follow a um, it's not a hundred percent sprint based agile environment. Our goals change so often that we don't always finish a specific two week sprint. We might shift right in the middle, but it's 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 intentional. But we've set it up that way, and we can do that. I think because we have a small team. And we also have a lot of generalists, to be honest. What I mean by that is we do have a marketing department that does our design and our graphics and our UI. So we don't have to really worry about that. But we are stuck with database design. We are stuck with back-end development where, where now everything is front-end development. So we're stuck with front-end development that, again, has the passion for programming. And I don't know if, you know, we transition a little bit into building a team here, but the idea is finding people that are just passionate about programming. We are a open source shop. So we uh, do majority of our stuff in PHP and MySQL. We don't get too fancy there. However, there are some really nice PHP frameworks. There are some, you know, the databases are some of the fastest in the world that are in the open source. Right now, everything's leaning a little bit into the NoSQL stuff. Um, and so we use some of that as well. But Going back to the team, sorry, I'm getting distracted very easily. Um, going back to the team, we have a director and he's just responsible for making sure that we're going in the right direction, right? You got to have somebody that's steering. You know, we kind of, as an executive manager, we set the direction or the kind of the end game, but they're steering, right? You might need to go left, you might need to go right. They're really directing the team. And then from there, we have a couple of uh, lead developers. Now, one of them is very, very... Um, competent in the open source technology and very, very competent in the really low level, understanding the intricacies of, of data types and securities and storage options, just very, very good at that stuff. And then we have another one that's kind of uh, focuses on our product, our products. And what I mean by that is like, more like features, like where the features can fit and how they can interact and how they need to connect, right? And then from there, you just have supporting staff. And it's interesting because they don't really follow one specific path, depending on what tool we're working on or what item uh, we're working on. They might be working with one 
lead developer one day and, and the next lead developer to the next, depending on what tool it is. Not the best for everybody, but it has been really successful for us. And it gives us a few different things. One is you're not reliant on one person. You don't have just a front-end developer. And when that person's sick or when they just don't quite have it, you can't go to anybody else. You're kind of stuck with what they're capable of doing and they don't have anybody else to bounce ideas off of. They're just the front-end developer. Now, I guess the idea is if you get big enough, you have two, right? Or you have three, but we're not there, right? We like to build nice in-house tools, make sure they work well, stay agile. And so you're really flexible. If one person's not available or they need to take a week off or something like that, you just keep going, right? These guys are able to shift and mold and kind of fill in the gaps for each other. What about motivation? Do you have any specific algorithm how to motivate people? <laughs> well, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Uh, this was pre-COVID. So it was, I don't know, let's, let's give it a two years ago or so, two and a half years ago, we were okay. sitting when we, when we used to work in the corporate office, right? There was probably 50 or 60 people in the office every day. Me and one of the developers at the time was working on a, a new dashboard, right? And we had made some changes. We had really kind of completely optimized this, this one, it wasn't a screen, it was probably three or four screens together, but we, we had just optimized this dashboard. And uh, let's say we had spent a week or so on it together, kind of working through some ideas. Nobody had really seen it. Just kind of at our own self-motivated, like trying to make this thing better because we knew it was a problem. And so um, we had launched it over the weekend and had kind of sent out some documentation saying, hey, this new dashboard's up and everything like that. So Monday when we get into the office, just before lunch, Again, there's probably 40, 50, 60 people in the office and we're walking around and just about everybody had that dashboard up. Just about everybody was clicking on the dashboard and using the dashboard. And I'll tell you, motivation-wise, there's nothing better than walking around with your developer and he's seeing 40 or 50 people using the software that they just launched and worked on it for a week or so. Um, so and we have a lot of those. That's just one example. I mean, again, the advantage of a small team is we don't have a guy that does checkboxes, right? His job is to work on a checkbox. We don't have that. We have a guy who's launching an entire dashboard and it's used by the whole company. Or we have a guy who's building a whole new tool for our customers to research home financing options online. And it's used by thousands of people the next day. For me, it's giving them substantial products, right? Something that they can call their own, that they can say, I did that. And, you know, tell their friends or, or other people in the company, uh, again, that also leads into, by the way, of, of making sure you are giving people credit, uh, making sure we have a, uh, we have a, a kind of internal social media platform where the company is, it's not public, but it's, and making sure you're announcing those like, Hey, this developer just launched this thing. How do you like it? You know, what do you think? Again, giving them substantial stuff to do where they can claim it and also making sure that. The company knows that they're doing it, right? Give them credit. Uh, you know, don't, there's no reason to hide behind it and letting them, showing them the results. So again, showing them user acceptance or activity through whether it's Google Analytics, like, look, you had 10,000 people use this tool yesterday. If you have a strong culture in your team, can this motivate your team members? Well, uh, it's, it's a little unique 
with guidance. Uh, again, we act like a small company, even though we're we're growing pretty significantly over the past couple of years. Um, we uh, culturally are very supportive of new things. Never have been hesitant to launch new things or change new things. In addition to that, we opened a, a engineering headquarters, like a, a technology headquarters, about a couple hours away from our corporate headquarters. So we have a location that's dedicated just for the development team and, and really the technology team. It's not fair to say it's only for the development team, but so we have been able to establish our own mini corporate culture and, and not necessarily get hung up in the day-to-day -day processing and sales, you know, all that, that monotonous um, kind of heart pumping, you know, company breathing culture, which is important by the way, but we're able to kind of establish our own culture uh, in the, within the technology department. And they have their own space. They've got dashboards that they can look at. They've got um, really nice workstations. We have these workstations that are that have wheels on them that they can move around. They're like workbenches and they can raise and lower. And they've got okay. dual monitors that are hooked up. They've got wireless, real nice wireless keyboards. Um, they literally, they just plug their laptop into a one USB cable and the whole station comes to life, right? So making sure that they have spaces where they feel like they're they're being innovative and that we continue to support that, that was important for us as well, um, mm -hmm. to make sure that we can not only rely on the company as a, as a broad culture, but be able to establish our own culture in hand. As soon as we had this COVID time when everyone worked from home maybe, or at least remotely, how can you keep this strong co corporate culture you know, working remotely. So do you have, uh, you know, what kind of experience do you have? Well, uh, especially after the COVID, COVID period. Yeah. I, you know, again, you go back to waking up every day, hoping that people don't figure out, you don't, you don't know what you're doing, right? Is it's not like we had a chance and, and the entire the United States, obviously the world kind of shifted from this in-house to this remote development. So we did everything we could. Fortunately, as a company, we were very well positioned. We had already transitioned to remote desktops and, you know, we were very well positioned to do that. But I guess it's all, everybody's different, but I'll say this, we sit on video calls all day. We almost have like this open invitation room where people just hop in and out all day. And there'll be some times where um, even, even as a manager, I don't get to do as much as I used to. But even as a manager, I'll just go and sit in the room and just people will ask, ask questions. For me, the, the main thing is regardless of whether you're in the office or whether you're remote, is making sure you have a communication channel and a communication channel that's not just there, but it's open. Right. There's lots of companies that have communications channels, but they're shut, they're shut down or, or they're closed off or they're, or they're, um, they're, they're not willing to consider new ideas. Right. It's very, uh, corporate-y. I don't know if that's a word or not, but I'm going to use it. Okay. And so, so yeah, we just sit in these things and it's sometimes we'll sit in the phone, you know, we'll sit in this room for two hours and not say a word. I'm doing my work. One of the developers is doing his work. And then all of a sudden nice. a question will pop up. And well, I'm just, okay, share your screen real quick and we'll just go through the code together and, oh, you know, here's something that maybe you want to consider. So 
I don't know if there's like a big secret to it, but for me, it's just having complete 100% open transparency. And if that means office hours, which is generally just an open room for anybody to come in and out, that's a really good start. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really cool. I think establishing regular meetings and, and meetings is a really bad word in our company because we end up in too many meetings. But establishing, you know, a, a weekly cadence where you've got everybody together on a meeting and do something that's not necessarily um, biz the business related. And so for us, every week we have this uh, question of the week and it could be anything like what's your favorite color and why? And we just go around the room, right? We've got 10 people on the call or eight people on the call and just go down that rabbit hole um, or... You know, I think one recent was, what do we think about Musk's, per, you know, offer to purchase Twitter, right? So that one was a yeah. little bit more political than it needed to be, but it's just interesting to get different perspective. What superpower would you like to have and why, right? So just establishing something that's a little bit different, just get people thinking outside the box, do it regular, regularly, and have open communication at all times. You know, anybody can access any information. You don't want them sitting at home for two hours, just spinning on the same issue because they're hesitant to ask a question. They don't want maybe they don't know how to ask the question, or maybe they think they have the answer right around the corner. And we could nip that in the bud really quickly by just having an open meeting. And so that's been really successful for us. I've heard many times that CTO is somebody who actually translates the business language into technical language and also vice versa. And uh, can you please tell us what are the current business challenges you, you have uh, in your current company in Guidance Residential, uh, maybe related to specifically business needs, business challenges, maybe product, product development needs, and how do you deal with that? Yeah, I will, I'll go back to something I said earlier that where it's much easier when you're a smaller company because there's a lot more trust, mainly because you don't have enough people to do everything, right? So you kind of have to rely on the people that are in charge to do what they, what they can and to do it correctly. One of, one of the biggest pains as you get bigger is the, the management overhead. The, the amount of reporting and um, requirements, the amount of people that are submitting their requirements, right? The amount of people that have a say or have their opinions. I think that's one of the biggest hurdles. And for me, it's making sure that we are able to capture all of that information, right? Because you want to be fair to everybody. You want to make sure that they, they're able to put in their input. However... I'm in the future. I'm not making decisions based on the tools available right now. I'm making decisions based on the tools that are available at all, like period, or they may not be available. Maybe we need to build something. And so the, the thing that I feel like I've historically been the most successful at is taking current requirements, but designing the end product for the future, right? What is next? How can we make it better? What tools can we use that nobody knows about? because they're not keeping up with all the fintech tools that are out there right now. Okay. That's probably the most important thing. It's kind of hard to explain how to do it, right? Because it's it's almost just a natural thing and then when you sit down and you're like, "Okay, explain it." It's kind of difficult to do. 
but that's, I think, the most important role. And we at Guidance have been very successful at that. And I, I thank them for that, by the way, in giving me the trust to be able to do that. Because I will go and build products with the team without a ton of feedback, right? Hey, there's a gap. I don't know the gap. I can't quite explain the gap, but I know there's a gap between this process and this process. We'll just go come up with some concepts. We'll usually put a proof of concept together, maybe draw some designs up, just kind of think about what are all the tools we can use and then come back with a general idea, you know, very high level. This is what I think we can do. We know that there's tools to do this. We think we can make it look like this. It's, it's going to require one click or it's going to require, you know, a customer logging into their bank, or it's going to require the customer to do something, but just very broadly explaining what you're thinking. Because remember, or I have to remember that they don't know what I'm saying. They don't know that these tools exist. They've never used these tools. So they can't imagine what they look like. So trying to break down, again, proof of concepts for us is very, very valuable. Um, just really quick proof of concept, something that can be clicked on. Doesn't have to have any meat behind it, by the way. Just has to look like what you think you can do and get that in their hands and then get their feedback. And so that's, I think, been one of the greatest uh, methodologies that I've been successful at and, and how we've been able to succeed and, and bring new tools to life um, at the same time, you know, satisfying what the company's requirements are. So you mentioned that uh, there is uh, like a growing number of uh, requests and uh, additional requirements from the business. So do you think that you need to scale your software development team right now? It's, that's an interesting question. I think that there's always room to grow, but there's also a sweet spot. And it really depends on a lot of of factors. One of the things that I've struggled with, and we've tried multiple different consultant companies to try to kind of supplement our team. But the problem is it's <laughs> fintech in general is new. It's 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 not an easy concept. You're you're connecting a bunch of you know, government agencies and banking agencies and, 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 and other fintech uh, companies. So we've struggled to find uh, companies that understand specifically fintech or more or less even the mortgage industry, where we end up training them, we end up training them more than they are producing in code, right? And by the time the contract's done, they walk away with all of this training experience that they got on our expense to just go do it for somebody else. And so we have been very happy with what we've been able to do. And we move at a pace where not only our, our, our company can support it, but also the customers. Because there is, I think, a negative impact if you move too fast. You know, imagine launching new features every week when the company hasn't even learned how to use the last features that you launched, right? And you get into this cycle of, of kind of uh, getting out in front of your feet, right? And, and, and which I think 
is really where you start into getting into the definition of cutting edge versus bleeding edge, right? And we have to be very careful that we stay in, an, in a zone that we're comfortable with. You have to push the limits, but you don't want to be that company that's out there on the bleeding edge. Um, and so there, we, we actually spent a decent amount of time uh, looking at the, the errors that we get out of our products. And the, it tells us a lot, right? It tells us if there's something wrong, but it also tells us when customers are going down a path that we hadn't intended them to go down, right? They're in a unique situation or, or something is, is not working. And so we actually spend a lot of time on analyzing those and focusing our efforts on those specific things because a little bit of friction causes a big impact to the, to the amount of work you're doing, which is a big impact on how much innovation and work you can put out. And so we do spend a lot of time focusing on the little pieces of friction so that we can have as, as seamless of a process as possible. And that ends up, even though it sounds kind of boring, but it ends up giving us a lot more output in the long run. And so that's kind of one thing that I've learned over the years. Um, and it's, it's not exactly intuitive, but it ends up paying off in the long run. Okay. Now, okay. I, uh, I think that there's always room to do more. You can always move faster. There's always going to be more features. But again, you have to move at a pace that the company, your clients can afford, right? That can, can uh, consume, right? And, and making sure that you're not getting too far out in front of every, everybody else. So do you think that you can, you know, scale and grow the business by itself without actually uh, scaling the software development team. So maybe it doesn't make sense, you know, to scale the software development team. Maybe you need to just, you know, keep costs uh, the same, uh, but uh, the business can grow. You can add more features anyway. So what's, what's your approach uh, here? What's your thinking? So the nice thing about technology is it can scale in, in an infinite pattern. And when you combine that with a, a specific process and, and, and guidance is, you know, we, we, we focus on one thing and that's mortgages. And we do a very good job at it. And over the years, you know, I've been at this for, I think 10, 12 years or so, maybe a little bit more than that. We've kind of made an attempt at focusing our efforts on that process specifically. We don't get distracted with other things. And so we've been able to, to spend our time building technology for all of these individual processes that can handle, you know, maybe they started out only handling a hundred people, but now they're doing a hundred thousand and building the technology in that fashion has allowed us to do so much with such a small team. And I guess where I'm hesitant is I don't know if there's a, a real answer to your question. Yes, of course, we could always get bigger. We could always spend more money. We could always, you know, deliver more features here and there. But being smaller, it forces us to focus on what's important, right? 
and not getting distracted with all of the wants, right? Being able to establish a really good balance of needs and wants, right? We only have a limited amount of time. So if you want something, you better really want it because there's not a lot of room. You're not going to get the next one or the next one or the next one, right? So you're really kind of forced to pick what's really important to you. We aren't really limited by the business is not limited how much they can do by technology. It's not limited by the number of developers, right? It's limited to how many customers they can get in the door and how many houses are being sold every month and everything like that. It's kind of, you know, a, a gray answer, you know, that gray area of, yeah, I'd love to, but is there a, a super big need to need, uh, to, to grow the team? I'm not sure there really is right now. Now, having said that, the company is naturally going to have to evolve right? As most companies do, right? If you're not growing, right, you're dying. And so as we continue to want to grow, it's going to be important to look for areas that we can grow in. It might not be a traditional mortgage type business. Uh, what can we do next? What can we offer, right? We've got, we've done a great job with mortgages. What do we do next? How do we, how do we transition? And so, you know, I think there's room when you start talking about um, other things. But again, if you build the technology right, you don't need to have massive teams. You just have to have the right team. Yeah, but, uh, you know, many times uh, I, I saw the situation that uh, when you have a successful product, like actually Guidance Residential right now with the current feature set. So uh, in many cases, in many cases, you know, companies try to get additional capital or maybe they are successful with their current revenue stream and they want to grow. And by growing, they mean adding more features or maybe adding some additional product lines and investing actually in the additional software development and product development, actually. It is a decision, Somebody, it should be somebody's decision whether to grow the business and the, the product to uh, and scale the product or not or maybe to have you know like not to uh, not to be the very fast maybe was growing my question here is whose decision should be that should it be the decision done by cto ceo all together the board uh, maybe leadership team you know what do you think about this yeah, I think it's a fair question. And I honestly think that every company, every product is going to have a different answer. Uh, for us, we don't go out there looking for seed investments. We don't go out there looking for large amounts of money to just try out ideas. We're very, very methodical about how we do everything. And it's a lot of how our culture is, right? How how our, co uh, our company is built, right? We have certain beliefs. We have kind of um, that moral compass that's preventing us from, you know, going down one path or another. And so we want to make sure that our ideas are thought out. And sometimes it does take us a little bit longer because we have to think about it. We have to, we have to kind of put some concepts together. Right? Look, how can we do it? Um, and, and, you know, we can't just go out and find a bank and just launch some new product because banks are not an option for us because banks are not 
um, they have certain limitations on, you know, how they have to report their finances and, and you know, um, different types of, of I, I think the idea is, you know, banks basically deal in debt, right? And being a Sharia compliant company, we can't deal in debt. And we have no interest okay. to, by the way. So we have specific things that kind of limit us with what we can do, how fast we can move, uh, what partners we have access to. You know, I think it's very important that, you know, you ask, you ask whether, you know, it's a CEO that's deciding or whether it's a, the CTO maybe, right? Or maybe there's a board or maybe there's some leadership team, right? And I th again, I think it's going to depend. I have a lot of flexibility in general if I want to try a new technique or new process, but it, I don't necessarily have the leverage to just launch a new product or a new feature set. We're not launching technology, right? We're launching financial products. And that requires a lot of, of partnerships. And I think that comes for us specifically comes from the CEO level and even up higher into the board, right? Where the board is helping us with these partnerships and looking at the risks and looking at the kind of um, uh, design of the products because they have to be very carefully designed. I The short answer is, I think it's going to depend on the company. Um, I think that at the same time, you have to give your executives, not just me, that not just the CTO, but also the, the CFO and the COO. And, you know, they need to have some level of autonomy to be able to make their own mistakes and do their own things and try their own um, features and, and, and products maybe. But I think it all goes back ultimately up to what does the company want? What can the company support? And I think that's the main driver of that's the CEO. Another question here also, um, what do you think are the conditions, maybe like some triggering events to decide whether you need to scale your software development team or not? Yeah, uh, so we, we basically focus on, we have a, a variation. I'm going to try to use generic terms so that it, it applies to everybody, but I, I think you basically call it a backlog, right? And we take a look at a backlog uh, and a backlog is, is um, I would call them wants. Um, you have to be very careful that you don't, your needs don't get put in the backlog because a lot of time the backlog doesn't get done. However, one very simple metric is just looking at your backlog and is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it stable? Right. Okay. And that's a very, a very simple indicator about whether you, you need to grow your team or not. Um, and I think it's interesting because if, if you're managing your backlog correctly, it's a very good indicator in the sense that specifically in the mortgage industry, rates are going up in the U.S., Every few weeks, it seems like the Fed is raising rates. Um, home prices are going up because of the craze to, to get out of the cities. And so for us, the, the market is changing so fast that we have new projects that come in very quickly. And they kind of push things off because we got to react to the market. You have to, right? You have to stay competitive. What happens is when you do that, your backlog builds up a little bit. So it's almost a, it's a very good indicator of how well you're handling these, the change in the market, but also the, the changes in the evolution of the products themselves. I don't know. That's, that's a very simple indicator. It is something that we, that I use um, to take a look at. And we've been very good at managing that again, because we're not a huge team, we're not delivering everything that they want. And sometimes it takes years of training 
And I don't mean training, like sitting down training somebody. I mean, training a company to understand that if you want something, you better want it and you better have a reason and you better be able to explain it, right? Give us as much information as possible. And we've done a very good job of eliminating. I want this checkbox. Well, why do you want it? I don't know. I just think it would be easier or be nicer or faster, you know, whatever it may be. And we sit down and talk with them about that and just making sure that the backlog doesn't just build up with a bunch of wild requests. It needs to be methodically managed, but that's a very good indicator. I think when you're looking at team growth and, and, and um, you know, what you can and can't support. So do you, do you have any, any metric how to measure the return on investment for your backlog? Because, you know, every feature you develop uh, should or even must, uh, you know, add more value to your business. But do you have any kind of metric how to measure that? That's tough. Um, we make a lot of assumptions up front. And, you know, we look at everything from, you know, uh, seconds or minutes saved, right? You've got to pick a metric that you can at least quantify. Um how many times does it happen, right? I mean, you, you can look at all that stuff, but you, it's just guessing. At the same time, you have, to, you have to also consider things that are non-monetary, right? It's very easy to look at hours saved um, over, you know, when you take a one-minute task that you eliminate over 200 people and it happens 10 times a day, right? You can look at the time saved, but you also need to look at how does that person feel like the, the, the mental reward that they don't have to do this monotonous task, even though it's a one minute task, how does something look better, right? How much easier is it on their eyes to look at, or how quickly can they see that information? There's so much at play. However, the market is changing so quickly. No one would have expected what was going to happen over the last two years. And I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen over the next year. There's so many things going on around the world. There's so many things going along, going, uh, going on right now in the U.S. If you try to quantify everything, it, you really are guessing, right? So you're making educated guesses. You're making a lot of, uh, of decisions on intuition, right? It's like, I don't know if I can really quantify this, but I'm telling you, we need to automate this. I, it's just, you just know. And that's something that you just gain over the years when you see so many different features. We have a, a project management office, right? And they deal with projects and they deal with cost benefit analysis and all of that, right? You know, I don't do a ton of that. Be, and it's mainly because technology is just the facilitator. How can we use technology? And I spend most of my time giving estimates on how much faster it's going to be or how much more efficient it's going to be or you know, in some cases, how much more secure, it might not be faster or more efficient, but it's just straight up more secure and figuring out how to quantify that. But a lot of it is intuition. A lot of it is just looking at those items and, and, and knowing what does it do for us as we go to the future, right? And you can't quantify that. Uh, we made a change. I'm not going to get into specifics, but we made a change a couple of weeks ago, had nothing to do with, with efficiency or automation. It was just a change to set us up for the next product that we wanted to do, right? The next feature, you know, nobody noticed the change, right? Nobody noticed it was faster, but the architecture behind the scenes set us up 
to be able to uh, offload the work to a worker, like a queue, like a worker-based queue system, right? So the current process, it's all synchronous, right? Everything has to happen in order, right? And it ends up delaying the process. So we do a lot of things that are just setting us up for the future and nobody knows what the future is. So you can't explain that. You can't quantify that. You can't put a cost estimate or a value of, on that. You can just making the best guess based on your experience, your intuition, your knowledge, and to what is the next item on the list, working with the departments on what are their high priorities. Because sometimes there's no sense in doing something if they have such a huge pain that they're struggling every day. So you got to address you know, the pain points, the needs first, right? And then sprinkle in the wants based on various things. Cost-benefit analysis, right? I hear it all the time. But you know, a lot of decisions aren't based on cost. They're just based on the future. And you don't really know what it looks like. So you're just kind of guessing, um, you know, using your experience to do so. You mentioned the backlog. So if, let's say, during one month, <laughs> your backlog grows for X10, 10, 10 times. So what, do you have any kind of plan? Yeah, that's where you get into a situation where you really have to look at what happened, right? Tenfold, I know, is an extreme. I know you're trying to kind of uh, stir the pot here. So do you think it's impossible situation? To, to 10x your backlog? Yeah, I think so. I think if your backlog, okay. if your backlog increases 10x, there's something wrong. Either because there's no way that that many needs or or process flows have changed in what a given month or something like that. I mean, you would see it coming so far in advance that you would be already be making moves to change it. But, but I understand what you're trying to get at. And I'm gonna try to answer it the best I can. You have to make a decision, right? Is that growth permanent or temporary, right? Is, is it just the fact that our backlog is now going to be 10X? on a regular okay. basis, you have to do, you have to look at it and understand that before you make any decision. It's going to tell you, are you going to bring in consultants because you need to do something? Are you going to hire because you need to do something? And they all have their benefits and they all have their disadvantages. Um, hiring specifically, if, if I don't know what, you know, let's say in, in a month, your backlog grows by that much, you're not gonna be able to hire somebody and bring them onto the team in any fashion that's going to reduce that backlog for at least probably three to six months, depending on the employee. And okay. what I've had to learn over the years is every employee that you hire actually reduces another employee's output because they need to learn, they need to ask questions and who's gonna do that? It's going to be another employee. And especially in development, I can't send a new employee to the HR team have them do some company training and come back and be done. No, they have to learn the deployment process. They have to, they have to learn the tools. They have to learn um, the, the, the mortgage industry, right? Go out there and try to find a mortgage expert developer, right? It's like one in a million probably, right? So they come in, they have to learn the mortgage industry. They have to learn the lingo. There's so many words in the mortgage industry that they had to learn. Not only is it gonna take them three to six months before they're producing anything, they're also gonna drain one of your other employees. 
So you have to be very careful when you're looking to hire and it has to be very strategic. Again, when you hire some a consulting company to come in, they also have to learn your process, right? It's very difficult to find consultant companies that understand deployments and understand unit tests and understand code reviews and understand processes. Um, that, that also, one of the biggest things is, is understanding how to work on a team because we get a lot of work from consultants that is written as if no one's ever going to see that code again. It's like, I'm the only one writing the code. So I'm going to write it in a way that only I understand. I'm going to comment it. If, if I do comment it, I'm going to comment it in a way that only I will understand. And I'm going to follow code formatting that I'm familiar with. You've got to be very careful with that as well. Because otherwise, you're just going to take more time away from your team to do longer code reviews or even rewriting code or longer um, delivery times because you're sending it back. You know, there's not one way, there's not one answer on how you address something like that. But I do think the core there is if that were to happen, there's something wrong, majorly wrong with the company's concepts of what it should and shouldn't do. And mm -hmm. that's kind of part of a CTO's job as well, is making sure that the company understands that they are that, that they are a facilitator, right? They are they can also steer us. And you know, if something like that happens, then we're being steered in the wrong direction. Something something else major is wrong. It's not the technology. Okay. So do you mean that CTO needs to predict whether you will have that kind of growth or not in advance? Like months before it happens yeah i mean you're all you're constantly out there looking at new technology and new processes mm -hmm. um but the industry doesn't in the mortgage industry we are kind of governed by state agencies and federal agencies we're not a bank we don't deal with banks so we don't have to deal with the banking laws but we do have to deal with state regulators and and federal law and mm -hmm. fortunately those industries move very slowly. Okay. So, you know, we okay. have the advantage of not having to worry about regulation change. It does happen, okay. but it's it's planned in advance, right? So understanding your industry is very important, right? Understanding what you're getting into and how it can and can't change. Um, mm -hmm. In fintech specifically, you know, you see companies like, like Robinhood, or, um, you know, other companies like that, that are, that are trying something that hasn't really been done before. I know Tesla's pretty good at this as well, right? Elon Musk is all about, let's just build it and let's deal with the regulators later because they don't know how to solve this problem. They don't, they've never seen this problem. They've never seen this product. So trying to go regulations first is, is a, a pretty big disadvantage. Whereas if you can get something out there and let the regulators see it, then you can let them make a decision and you can react on that. But you have to understand that business, right? I'm sure they're hedging, right? Robin Hood, the regulators could come out and say, no, you can't do this or no, you can't do that, right? But they're hedging against that based on how they're building their products and, and being open probably with the regulators, right? Yeah, you have to plan it. You have to kind of understand what are your risks. And that can be industry changes, regulation changes, customer changes, um, a competitor. Uh, you know, they, the, the saying is that when technology interrupts something, it is violent. It's not 
hey, by the way, I'm going to try something new. Technology is a violent interrupter in an industry. And so, yeah, you just have to understand the industry. You have to understand the environment that you're in. You understand the company that you're with. So you do have to kind of predict it. Now, you might not be perfect, but you do have to take all of that into consideration. If we talk about the additional uh, additional things, uh, items in backlog, um, you know, it can be different sources. Can you tell us a little bit more what's, uh, what additional uh, product lines or maybe product features are you going to develop uh, uh, maybe during the next half a year or so for, your, uh, for the guidance residential? I think to be fair, I'd rather not get into that. However, uh, okay. we, we see... But what's the approach? How do you decide? What yeah, you uh, look, actually? I, I, will, I will say that we, we have a, a very, very uh, exciting market to be in. It's a traditionally underserved market. We have a very authentic product. We have a very authentic company, very authentic customer base. Yes. And there are those customers have the same needs as everybody else in the US. They've, they're starting families and they're having kids and they're buying houses and they're going to school and they're starting businesses and they're doing all of that, right? They're doing the same stuff that everybody else is out there, but they don't have access to financing that, that aligns with their beliefs. And so there's a huge market there. I don't know exactly which direction we'll go in, but we have been very successful in the mortgage space. I think there's a lot of room for us to really enhance the lives and the options for that market. You have pretty good experience working with, uh, you know, uh, senior software engineers, as I understand. So what's your, so maybe what will be your advice? How will you select a good developer to your team? Actually, what's your definition for a good developer and how will you select and attract a good software developer, software engineer to your team? I think that's one of the easiest questions. And okay. I, I, it, I, it might be difficult for, for some people. And, uh, and, and I didn't say it was easy, by the way. I, di I didn't mean that it was not difficult to find somebody, but I think it's an easy question to answer. It goes back to what I started with is just passion. And to be honest, passion is one of the easiest things to get out of an interviewer, right? When you're sitting down with a candidate and you're looking at what they're doing, passion is one of the easiest things to determine. What I do is I ask them, what do they do? Have they done anything for their friends and family members? Everybody has that family member that wants to start a business. Or everybody has that family member that maybe already owns a business or, or has some pain point. And someone who's passionate about development will always find an opportunity to use technology. I'll give you an example. We had a gentleman who we were interviewing and, you know, I asked him the question. So what do you do like on your own? Like what kind of things do you like to build? If you had four hours of uninterrupted, nobody's bothering you, you wanted to build something, kind of what would you do? And you know, this, this individual got into programming when he was young and um, something triggered him and he, he was really excited. And so he built a mobile app and it was a very specific mobile app. It did something um, 
it had to integrate with like a weather API so that he could get like weather patterns. And he put it on the, the app store. I think he said he was 12 years old at the time and he made like $20,000 off of it. And that is really what just sparked. He's like, oh man, if I can do this, I want to keep doing it. But the point is, it was he didn't have to think about it. He knew the answer. He's like, oh yeah, I built this mobile app and I thought this was really cool and I did this. And he talks about all of the other little projects that he did for his father who had a company and everything like that. And then, you know, he talks about, um, you get him really excited when you ask him um, an another question is, who do you follow? You know, in the space, you say you want to be a developer, who do you follow? They can go off. They can talk about, oh, I follow Taylor and I follow this and I follow these these Laura casts and I do this and, you know, they can just go on and on. It is, it's again, one of the easiest things. All you have to do is just ask a little question and they'll just keep going on and on and on about it. I go back to that because it doesn't matter how smart they are. If they want to know how to do it, they're going to learn how to do it. You don't need to get into these, you know, trick questions that you, you hear about all these Google questions, right? If you were one inch tall and you got put in a blender, what would you do or something like that? Right? Like, you just have to find the passion. Now, of course, you want to make sure they know how to program, right? You're, you're doing the basic stuff, but that's, again, it's an easy concept, right? Give them a little task. What does this code do? Or, you know, can you find the bug in this code? Yeah, you get them started and they just go on and on and on about the products or the ideas or the things or the startups or anything like that. I mean, you've got it. And then, you know, distinguishing that from a senior developer Senior developer, you take it a little step further. You start asking them very specific questions about um, a really good one is if you had to store a zip code in the database, what data type would you use? A senior developer is the guy that's going to understand it's not an integer, right? A lot of people just go, oh, it's a zip code in the US. It's five digits. I'm just going to store an integer. Whereas a senior developer is like, well, you'd have to store it as a string because some zip codes in the US start with a zero. So you can't do it, right? And you may want to format it with, uh, the US has two zip codes. It has a five digit and also a, a nine digit, I think, right? So you may, you don't know if the zip code's five digits or nine digits and the nine digits have a dash in it. So again, they're going to know the difference between those kinds of things. And that just takes experience, right? Asking right. them very detailed questions and 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 understanding how far into the underlying principles of development, not PHP. Can you write PHP? Can you write Java? Can you write JavaScript? None of that matters. You have these frameworks that are incredible, but do you understand why? Do you understand why to use a for each versus a for loop or a while? Like what are the differences? Can you write a recursion, recursive function? Um, you know, things like that. That's where you distinguish the, the senior developers. But again, without passion, none of it matters because it's changing on them every single day. There's a new version of PHP that comes out all the time. There's a, a new tool and a JavaScript framework, a new front-end framework, a new back-end framework. It is always changing. Uh, that's, that's, my, that's my, you know, gold advice for everybody is just ask the little questions and let them talk and talk and talk and talk. And you'll find that passion. And if you want to know how good they are, then you can ask the technical questions. But none of it, ni neither of it matters if they don't, if they don't have passion for it. We had it. You know, pretty good and this interesting discussion about the scaling your team or not scaling a team. So, what will you advise? Will you advise to scale your software development team, or will you advise you know to have more steady growth of your team? I think that 
there's always room to grow the team. I think for us at this stage, it has to be steady. You know, there's a, there's a ton of advantages in bringing new team members, right? Because you end up with a different perspective, different experiences. Those can really stimulate a team as well. But there's also risk because I'm very fortunate that we have a very close-knit team and everybody works together. And they, again, we will sit in these open virtual rooms for hours and they just sit there and chat at the same time they're working in the background. It's difficult to find. And one, one bad hire can really derail a whole group. So there are advantages, there are disadvantages. I do think you have to consistently grow at a, at a pace that you can absorb. Has, in our case, it needs to be steady. It's not going to be violent. But as we grow as a company, as we look to what is the next feature, what is the next product, depending on that, I think it's going to be important that you, you can't continue to grow your product portfolio, right? I remember when we started our, our you know, Git repository years ago, it was like three repositories or something like that. Now it's, I mean, it's over actively probably 12 or 15 active products. You can't continue to add active products without having team members that can support them. So I do think the answer to your question is you got to have steady growth. But as you start introducing major players in your product portfolio, I think you do have to hire for those. So if you were to introduce a major, you know, new financial product, I, I don't know what it would be. I, reverse mortgages for something like that, right? And you need to create a new platform or something, right? You'd have to hire a whole staff for that. Um, now, is it two? Is it three? Is it 10? It would really depend on how much you go into that, that kind of uh, product. So. so what will you advise actually, if you need to add more, more engineers to your team to add more people in your in-house software development team or use external um, service providers? If you have no intentions of having an internal development team, you don't, you don't have any intentions of bringing in an, in, um, an in-house expert, then you have a lot more flexibility with the consultant route, but you have to rely on them, right? So, you know, it might take some trial and error. It might take a few different companies, but you're going to find somebody that you can rely on. The other side of it is we do want in-house experts. We want to control our future. And because of that, we won't hire a consulting company unless one of our senior developers takes the lead on it because that consultant has to go through them. They have to, they have to learn from that developer. They have to follow his style. He's the one that's going to show them the deployment cycles and, and process and, and, and code formatting is a big thing. Right, and we make sure that all of our developers are following the same code code formatting. So it's important. You, you have to be careful with the ratio, right? You can't have a bunch of consultants and one person in house that's doing all of that because they have to be able to manage them. You have to make sure that you're you're writing code that's going to last within the company because the consultant may or may not always be there, 
but you're going to be stuck with it. You're going to be managing it. You're going to have to upgrade it. You're going to have to change it. I think it's important to just make sure that you have a good ratio there, right? An in-house expert to X number of, you know, consultant developers, maybe it's five to one or something like that. I mean, I think you might be able to get up to 10 to one, depending on if it's a specific project or not. All right. Got it. Got yeah. it. Okay, Danielle. So um, thank you very much for this uh, interview, for this conversation. So it was really nice to have you today on our FinTech CTO podcast. And uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you having me. This was uh, very cool. Um, I, I have enjoyed working with you guys, and I hope that we continue to work together. And you know, I look forward to see what you guys do in the future.